Now, uh, if you remember where we're at in the story, so um, Daniel was serving the Babylonian Empire, and then all of a sudden, uh, Babylon got taken over by the Persian Empire. We talked about that some a few weeks ago. And so uh, now it's the Persians who are in charge, in particular uh, Darius and Cyrus, and Darius is um, here. So it pleased Darius, uh, the emperor of, of Persia, king of Persia, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Okay, so we get an insight into sort of Persian uh, polity, how they're, how they're uh, uh, running their kingdom. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So just a, a real quick point here. The conspirators, clearly they want Daniel gone, even though he is obviously, in this instance, the best man for the job. And they only really care about their power. They're, they're not caring about what's best for the Persian Empire or, or, or for Darius. They care about their power. Okay, let's keep going. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. It's always good to start with a bit of a, you know, you grease the wheels a little bit. Um, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, at this time, of course, it was popular, common, uh, to treat kings as semi-deities and to pray to them and worship them. So anyone who prays to anyone except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And that was a Persian law that wants the, to sort of keep the kings from being too capricious. Uh, once the king gave a law, that was it. it couldn't be, he, he couldn't, you know, five minutes later say, no, we're not going to do that. So in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Let's keep going. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? Let's keep going. And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, they want to remind him that he's a foreigner, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. Now when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. Why was he greatly distressed? Because he was angry because Daniel had broken the law? No, he was upset because Daniel had been caught in this trap. And he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Uh, not an insignificant line if you reflect on it uh, for a minute. One, um, the king is trapped. I mean, he, it is the law. Uh, once, uh, once something is 
you know, put down in writing. You can't just go back and reverse it. There were a bunch of people who saw Daniel pray, so there's a bunch of witnesses, not just witnesses, but witnesses of note and of power, people of, of wealth in, in the country. So the king cannot, Daniel is going to be thrown into the lion's den. That's just going to happen. So when it says that uh, he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort to save him, my expectation is that he's trying to get Daniel to leave town. When he says, made he's telling Daniel, this is the, only what, the only way out really is you need to leave. If I was the king, I'd say, here, I'll give you five men as bodyguards. Get out of Babylon. Go north or wherever. Um, my expectation is that Daniel just wouldn't. That, you know, Daniel stayed. Okay, so... Uh, let's go to the next one there. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes uh, and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Which is sort of similar to how Nebuchadnezzar in, in the earlier chapters of Daniel sort of refers to the God of the Jews, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, uh, the, the God of the Old Testament. Um, you know, they're polytheists. They believe in a, a range of gods. And so they identify each god as, as per their unique characteristics. And one of the things that they thought was unique was that um, uh, people like Daniel continually served their god. They didn't worship other gods or serve other gods. And so that, that's sort of a, a descriptive phrase. May your god whom you serve continually rescue you. Let's keep going. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles. They really wanted him dead, the, the nobles. So that Daniel's situation might not be changed. They couldn't be rescued. Then the king returned to his palace, spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. He's very distraught. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Is he capable of this? And next line, next page. Daniel answered, may the king live forever, which is the same thing the administrators had said to the king earlier, except Daniel really means it, as comes clear throughout the story, that Daniel's not just trying to uh, uh, compliment the king. And, uh, um, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, it's gone. But uh, Daniel is, is, is honest in his approach here. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Now remember the administrators had sort of accused, they said of Daniel, they said, he doesn't care about you, king. Uh, before they even said, they said, Daniel has no concern for you. Daniel's saying, that's not true. I've not done any wrong before you. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found in him because he had trusted in his God. And it takes a turn to the dark. At the king's command, now remember this is the Persian king, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in, thrown into the lion's den, and for good measure, he killed their families too, along with their wives and their children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth a very carefully written edict, or I should say a poem, if you will. Uh, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Keep going. For he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. 
So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, unpacking that into just normal language, basically Darius is saying you can't persecute the Jews in the way that has been happening in certain parts of the empire, probably most notably Israel, that uh, Darius is saying we're, we're giving favor to the Jewish people and you need to, this God uh, has done amazing thing and we're going to honor this God. It's not that Darius became a, a belief, became a follower of Yahweh in the sense that he became a monotheist or anything. He's, he's not saying that God is the only God. He's just saying these are aspects of this God that are remarkable. Does that make sense? So, um, so that's what, what that's about. So that's a pretty well-known story. It's one of the most well-known stories of the Bible. Uh, Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, it's something um, you know that uh, we teach to children and whatnot, and it's, it has kind of a, um, well, it's fun, right? <laughs> There's lions, and people die, and it's really exciting. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a well-known story. Um, probably the best-known story of Daniel, and one of the better-known stories of the Old Testament. Uh, one of the things I wanted to go back to at the, at the beginning uh, of of my teaching on, on this passage is, is just is Daniel's pain. I think it's important, especially in this story where uh, we're getting further and further away from the beginning of the book of Daniel, and it's, it's easy to kind of separate these things out and forget where Daniel's coming from. Uh, Daniel is a man, uh, well as the phrase goes, a man acquainted with sorrows. He, he carries pain with him in his very bones. So just remember, Daniel was taken uh, by force as a young man, an adolescent, uh, from Jerusalem. And he witnessed there uh, the slaughter and the forced relocation of his kinsfolk and many of his family. Once in Jerusalem, um, he was, or excuse me, once in Babylon, he was pressed into service. He was castrated, something people don't talk about very often with regard to Daniel, but in all likelihood he was, he was castrated, uh, as, as most uh, folks would have been, and it indicates in chapter 1 that he was. So he was pressed into service under King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, castrated, and forced to learn about foreign gods and a foreign culture and serve the Babylonian kings, which is what they often did with the upper crust of societies that they, uh, that empires would take over. They would take the young, uh, talented, intelligent uh, young men and women sometimes and put them in places of, of uh, service. So that's Daniel's starting point of life, of adulthood at any rate. Defeat, pain, Loss of family, not just his family he's coming from, but the loss of his ability to even have his own family, and foreign oppression. So as I said, he was a man acquainted with sorrow in his very bones. Um, the things that he experienced, no one could really get over in a lifetime. It's not something you get over, you know, you hit age 40 or whatever, and you're like, well, that's just ancient history, I don't care about that. Just things like we carry with us, things, the hardest things we carry with us through our, through our whole lives. And who knows uh, what other unrecorded I mean, that's just the things we know from this text, which isn't very uh, detailed. There's probably a lot of other things he witnessed and saw and possibly experienced that were pretty, pretty awful. Um, but as the story shows, the world didn't conquer Daniel. Babylon didn't conquer Daniel. Daniel, in fact, conquered the world, uh, the known world at that time. So how does a young man bereft of support retain his dignity, his sense of self, indeed his sanity, and his relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his God. How does he, ma how do he maintain that? How, did that? how did that stay so strong? Well, I think as this story shows us, he did it, in part at least, or perhaps in whole, by spending time with God, by spending time in the Lord. 
And as, as I read from Philippians, thinking and meditating about what is lovely, thinking and meditating about what was noble, what was right, what was admirable. He spent time with God thinking about these things in prayer and meditation on God's word. And he spent time, uh, presumably as well, with other men and women of faith, even as we do. We know of at least three others who Daniel was in community with, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the first uh, part of Daniel. And so he spent time uh, in prayer and worship by himself three times a day, is what this passage tells us. It, it says in that passage, if you, uh, can we go back there, Jay? Um, keep going. Keep going. Yeah, the, yeah, here we go. Thanks. So three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before, or sometimes translated, as was his habit. So this is something he just did regular, three times a day, praying uh, to God. When I was a younger Christian, <laughs> I wrote a song once called Amazing, a second-rate song that wasn't particularly good, and you'll never hear it. You'll be pleased to know. Um, but I, I wrote it out of a, out of a place of amazement, uh, genuine amazement, my astonishment that people like Daniel or David or Joshua or Ruth or Miriam or Deborah, uh, these men and women uh, would trust God uh, believe God, risk their lives for God, love God, and they had no idea how God was going to accomplish his promises or his purposes. None. Absolutely none. And th th what was amazing to me is how, how they, they, for us, we know the, the full spectrum of the story, and we have Christ. We know how God forgives our sins. We know that we're, we're promised a, a world without pain and without sin for eternity. And we have this thing, I, mean, I hold on to that very strongly, as strongly as anything I hold on to uh, in this world. And these folks did not have those promises as such. They knew that God was holy, but they had no, this is something we sometimes forget as Christians, they had no sense or belief about the afterlife as such, or how God would take care of ultimately sin in the world. In fact, from what people could see, what people like Daniel could see, uh, the God of the Hebrews uh, Yahweh, really wasn't that successful compared to the other gods, measured by any worldly metric of success, whether the gods of the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians and so on. Israel was always a second-rate player. Sometimes they just got wiped off the map entirely, militarily, as in, as in uh, our, our narrative. Yet Daniel and others, in the midst of this overwhelming evidence that their god was not as strong as the other gods, found the strength to believe in this god as the only god, and believe in the face of overwhelming evidence that this God uh, was more glorious, more true, more real than any other God. And you might say, well, you know, of course he does. He saved him from the lion's den, these things. But Daniel's faith predates that. It predates all the miracles in Daniel. Like Daniel believed from the day of his persecution, from the day of, of, of leaving Jerusalem. He gave his life to God wholly and entirely before God did anything incredible at least as such as recorded in the book of Daniel in his life. So why? I mean, why does it, what, how do these people find the strength and, and risk their lives and sometimes lose their lives? This ends well for Daniel. Stories in the Bible do not always end well for the people of faith. I saw a great interview on, on YouTube the other night which um, answered this for me or, or gave me part of the answer uh, for me. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Peter Hitchens? Ben Boltinghouse, Caleb. 
couple of you, not many, you've all heard of Christopher Hitchens, or, or at least uh, Christopher Hitchens has a uh, lesser known brother, uh, Peter Hitchens, who's a devout Christian, uh, lives in London, uh, part of the Church of England. Um, very erudite, intelligent fellow who is not nearly as witty or quick on his feet as his brother. And sometimes Peter Hitchens and Christopher Hitchens would actually debate whether, you know, uh, Christianity versus atheism. And it was always painful to watch because <laughs> they're both very intelligent men, but if you've ever seen Christopher Hitchens in action, I mean, he could eviscerate you with a, with a sentence, and, and he would do so to his brother regularly. It was real painful. Uh, but, but Peter Hitchens is, in his own right, an intelligent, thoughtful man. And Anyway, he was giving an interview uh, in, in London about uh, a variety of things, and the interviewer asked him about his faith and pressed him on his faith. In fact, he says, why uh, does he believe in God, and in particular Christ, as witnessed to in the Bible. And he said something, Peter Hitchens did, that set the interviewer back in my heels a, on his heels a bit, and I perked up because I thought it was interesting. He, he said, Peter Hitchens said, I choose to believe it. He said, I choose to believe it. He said, it's a choice. Faith is a choice. Uh, Peter Hitchens said, I have good reason, I have reasons to believe that there is a God, and I want to believe that there if, if there is a God, that Christ is the full expression of that God. He says, I choose to believe that. He says, the lie is that on the other side, people like my brother or, or, or atheists or people who believe what they believe apart from the faith uh, don't choose their, their beliefs, that they somehow bubble up organically and they're just a part of them in, in some sense. He says, everybody chooses their beliefs. He says, and Peter Hitchens went on to say, I know that there are good reasons to not believe in God. I know that there are good reasons to be an atheist. He himself was a Marxist, an atheist Marxist uh, for most of his adult life. He said, I... I'm intimately aware of those reasons. And, but ultimately, we have to choose if there is or is not a God and what shape that God takes. So why do we choose what we choose? And that, that tracks with my experience on this earth, that this world really is, in a sense, a sifting of our souls. That's what this world is, is for us. It's, a, uh, it's, it's God putting our free will in front of us and saying, you must exercise this. You, you have choices to make, and they matter. And that, that's, to me, that's the, the full content of this earth, is the choices that are put in front of you that matter. As C.S. Lewis says, at least I, I hope C.S. Lewis said this, because I quoted him a little while ago on Facebook, and it wasn't C.S. Lewis. <laughs> the internet tells me that C.S. Lewis says, and whether he says it or not, it's, I think it's profound, that there are two types of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And that's kind of what Peter Hitchens was saying, too. Daniel chooses to believe in God, even though on the outside it appears that God has failed him. Again, before any of these miraculous events, it really looks like God has just failed him. If, you, you know, if, if soldiers come into Champaign-Urbana, kill a lot of my family, castrate me, and take me off to a foreign land to serve foreign gods, I'm going to have a real hard time <laughs> maintaining my faith, maintaining my hope, maintaining my sanity but especially my faith. But I believe that that is the world that Daniel wanted to live in, the world where God, Yahweh, is God, that he chose that and chose it strongly. He wanted, Daniel wanted, to live in a world of holiness. He wanted to live in a world of grace, where men and women who are made in God's image, were, excuse me, where men and women are made in God's image, and where they're commanded to respect that image in each other and honor that there's something sacred in each of us. 
He wanted people to know this God. In fact, his, his, his interactions with Nebuchadnezzar in the previous chapters show this passion on Daniel's side that he wants people to know that there is a God and God cares and God is love and God is holy and he wants people to know these things. And he chooses that. He could have chosen the Babylonian gods, but he chooses that. That's the world he wants to live in. And God honors that choice. And hence, these amazing faithful uh, miracles. And again, it's good, uh, what time is it? Okay. It's good once again, I think, to, to get our minds back into what it would be like to live in Babylon. And I, I talked some about this before, but it's hard for us to imagine what it's like to live in a society like that. Terrible things for the people of God, the terrible things they witnessed all the time and, and happened there all the time in, in a pagan imperial power. Uh, I just picked, I could have picked a number of things, but I picked this one as one example. Uh, this is from Herodotus, uh, <coughs> writing um, about Babylon, the city of Babylon. And, uh, you know, this, this is something that's uh, confirmed in other sources as well, so it's not, he just didn't make this up out of whole cloth. Just think about living in this city. This is Herodotus writing. The foulest Babylonian custom, the foulest Babylonian custom in Herodotus' opinion, I think there's a few contenders, is that which compels every woman of the land, every woman of the land, to sit in the temple of Aphrodite and have intercourse with some stranger at least once in her life. Many women who are rich and proud and disdain to mingle with the rest drive to the temple in covered carriages drawn by teams and they stand there with a great retinue of attendants. But most sit down in the sacred plot of Aphrodite with crowns of cord on their heads. There's a great multitude of women coming and going. Passages marked by line run every way through the crowd. It's an organized thing by which the men pass and make their choice. Once a woman has taken her place there, she does not get to go away to her home before some stranger has cast money into her lap and had intercourse with her outside the temple. While he casts the money, he must say, I invite you in the name of Mylitta. That's the Assyrian name for Aphrodite. It does not matter what sum the money is. The woman will never refuse, for that would be a sin. That would be a sin, the money being by this act made sacred. This is what sin and sacredness looks like in the Babylonian kingdom. So she follows the first man who casts the money and rejects no one. After their intercourse, having discharged her sacred duty to the goddess, she goes away to her home. And thereafter, no bribe, however great, will get her. So, and this is the part that Herodotus finds so abhorrent, although the whole thing is rather abhorrent. So then the women that are fair and tall are soon free to depart. The, the women who are, look beautiful in, in the eyes of the time. The women that are fair and tall are soon free to depart, but the uncomely have long to wait because they cannot fulfill the law, for some of them remain there for three or even four years. And there is a custom like this too in some parts of Cyprus. And he goes on. We have to remember that this is where Daniel's living. He would have witnessed this. I mean, this involves thousands of people, of course. This is part of the regular worship of Aphrodite in, in, in the temples of Babylon, and something that every woman uh, at least uh, on paper, was compelled to do uh, in the nation. So try to imagine that. And, you know, the, the temptation to go along with that, too. I mean, the, um, the, the pagan uh, faith systems often were highly sexualized. <laughs> you know, this just popped in my head. Maybe for Daniel, being castrated was a bit of a mercy. Maybe he didn't have to worry about some of those temptations or whatnot. But at any rate, there's some really dark, horrible, exploitative, evil things happening every day in Babylon where Daniel lived every day of his life. 
Daniel chose God. He chose a kingdom of self-control, a kingdom of honor and dignity between men and women, of holy living, and of worship of the God who forgave Daniel his sin. And in so doing, and this is the second key here for this story, in so doing, he chose to love and to serve his enemies. So in other words, Babylon, by, so do, by choosing God, Yahweh, that doesn't make Babylon his enemy. Or it does, rather, it doesn't make the people of Babylon his enemy, which is why he can pray for and serve and love people like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Cyrus. Daniel was probably reviled by many in the Jewish community for serving the pagan kings. And he was probably reviled by many in the Persian community for being a, a devout, what well we we've saw in this passage, for being a devout Jewish man. He probably took heat from both sides. But when he blessed the king from the lion's dead and said, may the king live forever, it had the ring of truth. He says, I'm, I'm for you. I'm not against you. Daniel wanted to love and to serve. And the king clearly believed it. And maybe in the end, Darius even found God through it. Who knows? We don't know the end of, of, of his spiritual story. And I find this really challenging as a Christian. Very challenging. Daniel's whole life I find incredibly challenging because it makes me ask myself who, are my, who my enemies are, who my deepest enemies are, people whose uh, life or, or actions or whatnot I find uh, repugnant or I find difficult to even wrap my head around. And then Daniel says, how can you love people like that and serve them in such a way that they can see God? That's very challenging. Um, it's hard to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing. It's, it's, not, it's not even easy for me on my, um, in my mundane life. Never mind talking about people like ISIS or, 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 or you know, the, the, the people we hold up in this world as being sort of the paragons of evil. Because make no mistake, Darius is, is a very evil man at heart, can be. He just slaughtered a bunch of families, which is, again, typical for, you know, when, they, when kings felt they were betrayed, they would kill the fam not just the, the person who betrayed them, but the families. That's sort of standard pagan practice. Um, who are our enemies? Who can we love? And I, I believe, and, and this is the, 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 the hopeful part, this is the, the part that gives me, um, uh, makes me excited about the story of Daniel. This idea that you can be thrown into a pit of lions that are hungry. Obviously, they kept them hungry. Uh, it's not like your local zoo. Where you <laughs> but a, a pit of hungry lions and go unscathed and go uneaten is an incredible miracle and a tremendous witness. And what I believe the scripture teaches us, and it teaches us over and over again, is that if we're willing to commit ourselves to God as radically as someone like Daniel, who experienced such hardship and such pain, but chose God, be just because God is God, not for any afterlife, not for just because he loved God for who God was and just didn't want anything to do with that chaos and the evil of the pagan world, that God did some really amazing things in his life, life-changing things. And I, I, that's the same God who's, who we worship uh, this morning. That's, you know, God has not changed since then. And that's, that's what gets me excited about this sense of, look, who, what can I do that it just seems radically anti-world in the sense of being loving and radically serving, regardless of who I agree with or disagree with, you know, um, that can change things. That can bring God's miraculous power into our midst. It can bring healing into our midst. Miracles are still possible on this earth. 
there are still lions whose mouths can be shut. But first, we have to choose what world we're going to believe in. I think that's, that's, the, fir that's the first item. We have to choose what world we're going to believe in. Yes, there's very good reason to believe there's a God. And there's, you can rest on the scriptures as historical documents. <coughs> I, I believe that too. But that doesn't mean you don't have to make a choice. There's also very good reason not to believe in a God. And I could stand up here and preach about that for an hour. And I can poke holes in the scriptures too. I'm very good at that. <laughs> That'd be a strange church service. <laughs> but we, shouldn't, we should not push away this notion of making a choice. Because that's what this world is ultimately about. God would... Your free will matters to God, which is why we live in a religious, in my view, why we live in a religiously ambiguous world. You get to make a choice, and God will say to you, thy will be done. Or you can say to God, thy will be done. Well, let's end there. And would you pray with me?